0: This is TechSnap, episode 379. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on August 10th, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, iX Systems, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about them in a moment. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-presenter, the engineer, the teacher, and the admin. It's Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne.
1: Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris.
0: It's good to be with you, Wes. You know how we like to start with warm-up stories. Well, here's just a quickie that uh, we put in here because it's a nice reminder that these things are actually possible. There is a buffer overflow in the processing of files for HP Inkjet printers that lets remote users execute arbitrary code. Not one, but two vulnerabilities have been reported in HP inkjet printers. A remote user can execute arbitrary code on target systems. You could create a specifically crafted file that, when sent to a target device, triggers a buffer overflow and executes that code on the device. And there's a good range of HP devices affected. It's not going to be the end of the world, but when we saw this story, we thought, that's just a funny reminder of how when you embed technology in these devices and then you put them on the network, you have to consider them as a possible threat factor. Exactly. Well, speaking of buffer overflows, Wes, we're going to be hearing a lot more of them from Black Hat 2018, which is spinning up in Las Vegas. Researchers ahead of the show said they have found a couple of buffer overflows in flaws that are in firmware for Rock and Asus devices, potentially enabling bad actors to remotely launch a man-in-the-middle attack against these devices.
1: The flaws, which were found by researchers from Eclipsium, are specifically in the update mechanisms of UEFI firmware. Additionally, as noted by the CEO of Eclipsium, the remote aspect is really important. It's the first time someone publicly disclosed the exploit against a UEFI system remotely. While a lot of research so far requires malicious code running directly on the box, we've discovered that these vulnerabilities in networks can now be exploited remotely. When the UEFI update mechanism for these manufacturers' firmware runs, it configures the network just using standard DHCP and then makes a plain HTTP, no S here, request to check if there's additional updates. So there's no SSL protection, there's no encryption, and there's no verification that it's actually talking to the correct remote server. The researchers
0: went on to add, if we were able to intercept this request via man-in-the-middle or other type of attack, we could redirect that request to our server, either at the DNS or even with route poisoning. We could modify the response returned to the client and exploit
1: that vulnerability. So just to make that worse and more specific, the code from both vendors that parses the responses returned from the remote server, so they go out, check, say, hey, you know, are there more updates? Then they get that response back, parse it incorrectly, and... They don't verify the size of certain embedded fields within the documents that they're handed back. And, of course, that's a buffer overflow, which allows arbitrary code execution just by checking if a newer version of firmware exists, something that might even be enabled by default on systems or in some deployments. Because the code's highly privileged and it runs, you know, before your operating system runs, researchers noted that bad actors could exploit it to do, well, an array of bad things, including using the NTFS EFI driver to implant malware into the operating system. Another, you know, benefit of UEFI is it does it does have a lot more sparts. It can mount and read and write to file systems. Maybe that can be dangerous too, right? That could allow things like using that driver to exfiltrate files stolen off the hard drive or encrypt them with ransomware. It can also do things like installing a system management mode rootkit and then letting the operating system load normally to attack other assets once the system's been booted. Another interesting note about this story is that so far the manufacturers listed have done somewhat different things. Oh. Uh, yeah, the researchers said that both ASRock and ASUS were promptly notified of the problem after they discovered it. Now, ASRock has deleted its update mechanism, which, oh. Oh. you know, actually it's not ideal. I do You know, you do want updates to happen when they need to happen when other security yeah. problems are found, yeah. but it does seem like they're not yet ready to run a secure update mechanism, so maybe it's better if they don't for a while. And that's a heck of a response. ASUS has yet to offer mitigations, so... Uh, mm. Watch out there, ASUS motherboard users. This story makes me think
0: about more than just the UEFI on my systems. It makes me think about all these different firmwares that are in all of these devices that have internet connections, like those HP Inkjet printers.
1: I think Eclipsium agrees, their CEO said, it highlights that we tend to spend a lot of time securing software and looking for vulnerabilities in software. But so much firmware has little visibility, and there's a, it's a huge target for malware. It's a really, it's a gap in the industry that needs to be closed and just needs more eyes on it.
0: You might have just seen this headline going around last week, How I gained Commit Access to Homebrew in 30 Minutes. This is based off of a Medium post by Eric Holmes, and he starts, Since the recent NPM, RubyGems, and Gentoo incidents, I've become increasingly interested and concerned with the potential for package managers to be used in supply chain attacks to distribute malicious software, specifically with how the maintainers of infrastructure of these projects can be targeted as an attack vector. That is something that Joe and I have been kicking around recently on Linux Action News, and we've discussed, you and I have discussed it a bit on Linux Unplugged in regards to Docker Hub and the Snap Store recently. And both of those had software submitted that had, um, guess what, Monero miners.
1: Shocker. Ever so popular these days.
0: And it's it's all been sort of these uh, repositories that are user-submitted. The Arch user repository also semi-recently had the Acro Reader. Uh, they sure did. Yeah. So there's been uh, sort of a, a a lot of these, and uh, it got Eric Holmes' attention too. And he has a pretty good post. So I thought, let's di- let's dig into some
1: of the more interesting bits that we could chew on here. And the audience just might enjoy it too. Yeah, it's a great write-up and just a good example case of uh, how easy it is to get things wrong when setting up these complex systems that turns out we all rely on. Yeah, especially when there's a mix of incentives. Like in
0: some cases, the incentives are not only to distribute software, but also to increase the popularity of the distribution method. Like in the case of the Snap Store or Docker Hub or NPM, there are mixed incentives involved and sometimes those lead to better than ideal security setups. And... Each one of them is improving. It's all part of a process. Uh, there's been some really good progress on all fronts, but it does lead to open doors.
1: Yeah. And we just, you know, definitely need more people taking a look.
0: Yeah. Like Eric did. And sometimes it's not even a technical flaw, it can just simply be a, a human mistake.
1: And uh, whatever that exploit might be, like in the
0: case that was the same thing that happened with Gentoo. It was a human mistake in that case. Yeah, human
1: mistakes. And, you know, these organizations can be just as vulnerable to things like social engineering as well. So it really does have to be something you think about holistically. Yeah. But the crazy part is here for Eric,
0: it only took him 30 minutes to get there.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) This is impressive. That's true. Eric's journey began on June 31st. He writes, I went in with the intention of seeing if I could gain access to Homebrew's GitHub repositories. About 30 minutes later, I made my first commit to Homebrew's Homebrew core repository. My initial strategy going in was based on credential theft. If I could find any credentials that were leaked by members of the Homebrew GitHub organization, well, problem solved. This was made easier with a tool called GitRob, which makes automating the whole search process super simple. I just simply ran it across the Homebrew organization. But unfortunately, even though it's a great tool, Ultimately, didn't come up with anything interesting. After doing some poking around, I noticed that Homebrew runs an intentionally public Jenkins instance at Jenkins.brew.sh. After some more digging, I noticed something interesting. Builds in the Homebrew Bottles project were making authenticated pushes to the brew testbot slash homebrew core repository. So he managed to get that far, but then it got him thinking, so where are these credentials being stored? Right, if you're making authenticated pushes, well, Jenkins has to have this credential somewhere. Taking a poke around, I noticed the environmental variables link on the left, which led to an exposed GitHub API token. Now, we should probably note here that there are ways to do this in Jenkins that you can configure it to store secrets, and then if you use other techniques than environmental variables to send those secrets to your jobs, you can do this in a way that makes it a little harder to get access to those secrets, but you you have to actually do that.
0: Isn't that so often the problem? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All
1: right. So he had this token. He'd started testing it locally just to see what scopes it had. So he fires up curl, sends off a request to GitHub, gets back a JSON blob, and well, it's a little interesting. At the first bit, you see, okay, well, here's here's a permission for brew testbot slash homebrew core. So you know homebrew core, but in the brew testbot account and not the main homebrew repository. But then there's also some permissions listed for. Other things that are under homebrew. So homebrew slash brew, and down here at the bottom, homebrew slash homebrew dash core. That's what we're looking for here. So admin false, but push is true. Mm, On homebrew core and brew. Exactly. So, of course, you want to make sure this is happening. So he writes again, Just to make sure, I tested this by creating a blob in the homebrew homebrew core repository. And then subsequently reported the issue... To the homebrew maintainers. Okay, so let's put this in perspective for a moment.
0: You have hundreds of hundreds of people use homebrew. It's a it's a package manager on macOS primarily, but it's also available for other platforms. It's a pretty good one too. I've used it on Mac, and it's made using the Mac quite more tolerable for me. It's it's like having apt essentially. Uh, Including you know some of the people that use it are employees at some of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley because a lot of them are on Macs for development work or for for preference. And they want to have Brew to give them access to tools like just simple things, really, like YouTube DLs on there. It's one of the reasons I installed it on the Mac was to get YouTube DL. So it's a pretty popular package manager because it's got the wide range of open source applications. It's very heavily used. And the most frequently installed package in the last 30 days is OpenSSL, which was installed over 500,000 times in the last 30 days.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, and these are, that's an important program that is involved in the security of so many other things that happen on your system.
0: And at this point, Eric has access to the homebrew core repo. So Eric was quite literally in a position where he could make changes to master and anyone that had a freshly installed homebrew or ran, say, brew update to just get an update would have received a malicious formula he had created because he could have stashed it in master. And they would have downloaded that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this one seems like a case of, I, I bet they didn't realize that token had all of those permissions. And so, you know, we're a little careless with it. Oh, it's just the QA token. It doesn't really matter. We'll stick it in an environmental variable. Or maybe you meant to clean it up and, you know, come back and clean it up later after you got everything working and never did. There are just so many ways for that to happen. Um, but it is... Definitely something that you need to consider, you know, like what are are the lifetimes of tokens you're using and what scopes, are are you auditing those? Do you know and are you careful with scopes that have any amount of stuff? And it can help to try to resist those temptations of, oh, well, I'm testing, I already have this set up and it's already installed on the server. I'll just add the scope to see if it works. I mean, okay, but, you know, have a checklist, go back, check those things, or just have good auditing procedures set up to scan those. If GitHub is a source of truth for you, it's probably worth spending some time on its security. So Eric did notify Homebrew. They know about it. Have they taken action as far as we know? The Homebrew team has worked with GitHub to audit and try to make sure that the given access token wasn't actually used maliciously besides what Eric did. Okay, good. At the time we recorded this, the Jenkins job still has the same API token there, but it looks like that's all been disabled, so it no longer actually has any access. I imagine they'll eventually issue new tokens, perhaps after they've revised their security procedures.
0: Ah, oh, that's good to know. Nice observation there. So let's talk about some of those tools like GitRob, tools that you can use yourself to audit your own GitHub organization.
1: As they put it, GitRob is a tool to help find potentially sensitive files pushed to public repositories on GitHub. You just run GitRob, it clones all those repositories and does a bunch of checks to see, are there anything that look like secrets in here? Uh, they've recently rewritten it from Ruby to Go, and it now has a kind of sleek-looking UI to explore whatever, you know, all the information it gets after you run it. Yeah,
0: I like that UI for viewing the results. That's nice. Okay, tell me about Trufflehog. It has a hilarious name, so I already like
1: it. Well, GitRob was a new one to me, but I'd used Trufflehog for basically the same thing in the past. You point it at a Git repository, and it searches it for secrets, digging deep into commit histories and branches. In practice, it's pretty effective at actually finding things that you've accidentally committed. Uh, In the past, they had one kind of check, which was just trying to compute the entropy of anything it found, and then using that, it would try to determine if that looked like a big, complicated, you know, big hash or a big, long password string. They've also now got a secondary regex check, so twice the checks, same program. All right, that's good for finding stuff, but now we need a way to clean things up. Look no further than the BFG Repo Cleaner. Once you've got the Repo Cleaner up and running, it's it's actually really pretty easy. Like, let's say you accidentally committed some uh, SSH key files to your repository. Oh, whoops, well, people can use those to get on the production server, so that's no good. You just run bfg dash dash delete files, and then you pass it the names that you want it to delete, point it at the repository, and away it goes. So you could run a whole bunch of different cleanups. They've got different things to strip large files or look for specific strings or regex patterns. There's a lot of, a lot of handy command line options there. So play with those. Once you've made your changes, uh, then you basically, you do have to do like a force push, but you replace all the references up that you had before with this new full copy of the repo that you make, and the secrets are gone.
0: They boast about it being fast, too, really fast. To say it's not particularly clever, but it is focused on making those tasks easy and straightforward. If you've got a few tools like these that you love, let us know about them. TechSnap.Systems slash contact. Let's take a moment and thank our sponsors for making this episode of TechSnap possible. And we'll start this week with IX Systems. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That's where you go to learn more about IX and support the show. IX Systems believes that open source technology has the power to change the world through its process of open collaboration and innovation. And this fuels all product designs at IX Systems. By leveraging decades of expertise in its hardware design, its contributions to many open source projects and communities, and corporate stewardship of leading open source projects like FreeNAS and TrueNAS, iX Systems has become the industry leader in building innovative storage solutions and superior enterprise servers for a marketplace that demands the most. You can learn more, too, about iX if you ever go to an event. They just recently blogged about OSCON up on their website right now. Start by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They're the only enterprise hardware vendor I recommend. And they have a bunch of different form factors. From 1U to 4U, iX Systems' line of rack-mount servers are purpose-built for your exact specifications. White glove from the beginning to the end. Go get a sense. Meet them at an event. Go read their blog and then give them a call. It's an experience and a level of polish you won't get from any other provider. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And also a big thank you to Ting, .ting techsnap.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is just $23 a month per phone. That's incredible. And it starts with the Ting service plan. It's $6 a month for your line. That's how much a phone line costs. It's just $6 a month. Think about that from like a, a large family or a small business standpoint. That's an incredible deal. So it starts at that $6 a month. And then it's just a fair price for however much you talk, text, and data you use. Nationwide coverage, CDMA, and GSM. no contracts, no service agreements, nothing weird like that that they sneak in. Plus the entire thing is managed through a brilliant control panel. Great customer service is just a call away if you ever need it. You talk to real human beings, and you can activate everything you need through their website, deactivate stuff, turn service on or off. It's such a nice package, especially for those of us who just kind of take care of these things late at night, and we don't even necessarily want to talk to another human being. It's fantastic for that. But if you're the kind of person who likes that human connection... Ting's got you covered there, too. And they've got a ton of great devices you can buy directly from Ting. Their line of Moto devices is not matched by anyone else. Or you can bring a device. CDMA and GSM just check their BYOD page. And if you do that, well, then they'll give you that $25 in a service credit, which will probably pay for more than your first month. It did for me. And while you're on the Ting site, check out their blog. They've got a great post right now on streaming services for students and schools. Not something I've given a lot of thought to until I read this post, and it's a good one. Ting puts a lot of thought into everything they do, and it really shines through their product. And I invite you to go check it out and get a $25 service credit or $25 off a device. When you buy a device from Ting or you bring one, you're in full control. So get started at techsnap.ting.com. And absolutely, a humongous thank you to DigitalOcean, snap. Go there to get a $100 credit that'll last you for 60 days when you sign up with a new account. Yeah, that's right. I said $100. When you go to do.co slash snap, DigitalOcean is super fast infrastructure that you can get spun up in less than a minute. SSDs for every system you deploy. 40 gigabit connections coming into those hypervisors. Data centers all over the world and a dashboard for days. The best dashboard in the industry. And one of the things that's great about DigitalOcean too, which I should probably almost lead with, is their pricing. It's super predictable, very fair, and it's unbelievable what you get, especially when you consider everything's on these 40 gigabit connections, SSDs. It's great. So my favorite system, three cents an hour, four gigs of RAM, two CPUs, 80 gigabytes of SSD, three terabytes of transfer for three cents an hour. But DigitalOcean's really about the whole package. You can get mix and match droplets where you can just pick the resources you need and you can manage all of it with their great dashboard and you connect with a ginormous community where there's guides and tutorials and one-click deployments for software for DigitalOcean. It makes experimenting and trying out ideas frictionless and then going into production Straightforward. Plus, they have cloud firewalls so you can block stuff on the edge before it even hits your rig. Monitoring and alerting can be baked right into your service, as well as backups and block storage. It's a fantastic service, and that's why I've spent up more and more systems on there. Now I think of DigitalOcean as my data center. It's great, and you can try it out for 60 days with a $100 credit when you go to do.co/snap. And while you're over there, do.co/snap, go check out their introduction to Helm, the package manager for Kubernetes. They have a great clear write-up on all of it. So go build something great, get a $100 credit, and read that guide at co/snap. A new vulnerability is making quite a bit of news this week because it's in Linux kernel versions 4.9 and newer, and even in some versions of FreeBSD. We'll talk about that in a moment. They're all vulnerable to denial of service condition... That doesn't require a ton of traffic. It can actually happen with low rates
1: of specifically modified packets. Effective kernels are forced to make very expensive calls to the method TCP collapse OFOQ and TCP prune OFOQ. These are both mechanisms that are there to manage the out-of-order packet queue. So if you send that this malicious stream, there's a ton of out-of-order packets and, and other you know, maliciously changed Unusual properties about it. Suddenly you have to call these things and you have such a, you end up with a giant queue filled with out of order packets that takes a long time to deal with. And they made some changes to the kernel where before it probably would have been handled better. They made some changes and they can't easily go back to those previous changes because they're, that system relied on a property they're now planning to change in the future. So Uh, (laughs) they've had to implement some other mitigation uh, attempts. If you send enough of these, it takes long enough that you're just going to peg the CPU cores, yeah. and you just can't process all the traffic that's legitimate.
0: That's the real denial of service here. It's not your, you're not overwhelming the network stack.
1: You're overwhelming the CPU. Yeah, exactly. In a worst-case scenario, an attacker can stall an affected host with less than two kilopackets per second of an attack traffic. So you can really send a, what's a pretty minimal stream of data on today's internet to a server, and it just bends over and falls down. Wow. Now, an important thing to note on the Linux side of things is to trigger these expensive functions, you actually need to have a continuous established two-way TCP session. So Uh you can't be using something like a spoofed IP because, well, you can't establish a two-way session with that.
0: In testing, with just four data streams, they could completely saturate a four-CPU core system. But like a lot of these stories, they're already working on the patch in a lot of cases before we even hear about them. So where is that at? Yeah, actually, the
1: fix for this was committed to the kernel two or so weeks ago, you know, before this was actually announced. Just, you know, runs in there with everything else. so there was no effective mitigation. There was no you know, sysctl you could tune or something that would affect this. You really just need to get a kernel. Um, they've now changed some of the logic to take into account, make sure that they don't put too much CPU cycle, and just do a better job of you know, dropping a bunch of, if you have like a bunch of small, possibly malicious-looking packets, those just get dropped early and don't waste a bunch of CPU time.
0: Like we mentioned earlier in the story, Linux isn't alone with this segment smack vulnerability. It's also impacting FreeBSD.
1: FreeBSD 10 through 11.2 are affected, but don't worry, maintainers have already released patches to mitigate. They've described the problem as an inefficient algorithm involving a segment reassembly data structure. This causes the CPU time spent on segment processing to grow linearly with the number of segments in the reassembly queue. So here again, we see a situation where, you know, you've designed some data structure. It works for non-malicious workloads in most cases, but... An attacker has done something clever, you can get that data structure to grow beyond the bounds of its, you know, what its intended performance is and cause problems.
0: Now worth noting here is one standout difference between the Linux vulnerability and the FreeBSD version of Segment Smack is the FreeBSD version doesn't require the use of a two-way TCP
1: connection, making it a bit easier to exploit. Yeah, as the advisory notes, an attacker who has the ability to send TCP traffic to a victim system can degrade the victim system's network performance and or consume excessive CPU by exploiting the inefficiency of TCP reassembly. Affected sysadmins are in a bit of luck, though. It looks like there is a workaround. You can limit the size of the TCP reassembly queue, which defaults to 100. The trade-off, though, is that a smaller queue can result in lost packets. Uh, of course, if you don't want to have to make that compromise, just go get a new kernel.
0: Thanks for going to TechSnap.systems slash contact and sending us your war stories, your questions, your backup strategies, and all of those. We'd like to collect a whole batch of them, so get get a bunch in. Get a bunch in. Maybe we'll do like a feedback special in the
1: next couple of Never weeks. Never too many. Yeah, really. We were just trolling our sysadmin this week and found a post that we thought many of you might relate to. I think I've been in this guy's position a couple of times. I imagine most people have. It was a post about a new sysadmin dealing with a lot of work-related stress. He writes, Hello, my now fellow sysadmins. I recently finished my IT-related education, and a week later got a job as a systems consultant. Wow, congratulations. That's great. This is not my first time working in IT, as I've worked in level one IT support before. But with more money comes more expectations and the sheer pressure of people expecting me to know everything about systems I've never worked with before or troubleshoot quickly on these systems, and it's making me extremely stressed. I guess my question is, how do you keep your head cool and not stress as much at or after work? I like that he asks after work, too. So
0: a bit here, I think, of what you have is the imposter syndrome to a degree. Um, you know, you're expected now that you're getting a certain amount of pay to have all of the answers and you're feeling that heat. But I would keep in mind that probably the way you got that job and got your education was your ability to research and learn and self-teach to a degree. And when someone is hiring, one of the many things they're hiring for is someone's ability to learn and grow and expand. And that is one of your assets as well. So you can rely on that. You can tell people, I'll have to get back to you on this. I'll do some research. That's that's acting a little funky. I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to do some research and get back to you. And that might just be how it goes for a couple of years. It may be how it goes forever. It depends on your field. You just get better and better at dealing with that.
1: And if you have you know good good people, good users, good developers, whoever you're supporting, they'll understand that, right? I mean, the more important part is that you're Attempting to take responsibility that you're going to go take a look. Sure, you might not know, but you will apply whatever resources you have to try and figure it out. And keep in
0: mind, even if you're not familiar with what the solution might be to a problem or even what the cause could be, you are infinitely further ahead likely than the end user is. That's why they've hired you. They use it as a tool and they expect it to perform in a certain way. You are the expert. Your basics, even if you don't know the answers to that core problem, are what give you the ability to get to the solution eventually. And that's something that only you have in
1: that position. It's still a valuable thing that you're bringing to the team. I would also remember that, you know, part of the interviewing and hiring process is establishing a dialogue. So as long as you didn't misrepresent yourself there – they should be aware of, you know, your experience level. They've looked at that, what skills you have. And so as as long as you're learning and advancing and, you know, asking good questions, all those normal things, not knowing is just should be expected. And if you still feel insecure about it, keep good notes, keep good logs, create documentation,
0: and then you can point to the value in your time in researching. If somebody questions, you can say, I didn't know that at the time, but I got to the bottom of it and I documented what the solution was. That is a pretty solid answer when somebody comes with that question. Beautiful. And that brings us to the end of this week's TechSnap program. Hope you enjoyed the show and you can find links to everything we talked about at TechSnap.Systems slash 379, including a link...
1: To something that's a bit of a follow up to a past story we did. Yeah, you may remember us discussing how Microsoft was sinking a data center uh, <laughs> under the ocean outside the Orkney Islands. <laughs> how could I forget? <laughs> how, right? Uh, well, good news they've done it and they've installed some exterior cameras. So no. there's some rather peaceful streams of lovely little schools of fish swimming around 27 terabytes of data.
0: That's great. Are you watching it right now?
1: Yes, it's it's kind of cute. You looked
0: kind of serene over there. It's like a fish tank on your computer now. And uh, the shot that you have up there, you can see the big data cable that's going back to sea, which is fascinating. That is so neat. Freaking data center under the sea. You can catch our coverage of that in a past TechSnap, and you can get weekly episodes by going to subscribe. In the meantime, though, That's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the TechSnap program, and we'll see
1: you next week.